hello there, friends. How are you? Welcome to the program. It's your pal, Andrew, bringing you the Raised by Whoops Fake Radio Show, and I got a guest for you today, Maria Hornbacher. Now, before I tell you about her, and I can hardly wait because she's incredible, I want to mention that my partner in fake radio, Glenn Vanderkloot, is on a brief hiatus, but will return soon. I miss him, but he's still around in spirit, so don't worry, he's coming back. I'd also like to mention that I've finished recording the audiobook portion of my recent release, The Moron at the End of This Book. It'll be available for purchase on Audible in November. For real, November. For now, you can find it in paperback, hardcover, and on Kindle through Amazon or my website, moronbook.com. And lastly, I'm working on a project with my pal Leon Blunda called I'm Dying Up Here. It's an anthology of short stories collected from people like you. We're currently accepting short story submissions from actors, comedians, musicians, dancers, and anyone who's ever performed and beefed it or been humiliated, or has a dark, humorous story to share. We want to hear them, and we'll pay for your story. And we'll publish it in a book. How about that, eh? Visit leonblonda.com for more information. All right, now for my guest. Adjectives are going to fail me here, so let me just give you some examples of what type of person we have on the show for you today. Maria Hornbucker, author of at least five books, including Wasted, Madness, and Waiting. Now, Maria has stared into the face of what Camus described as the benign indifference of the universe and caught it winking. She's chased down demons, defeated that which has been described as clinically unbeatable, transmogrified singular music into the written word, traveled the world looking for better questions, defied convention and convection. I'm not exactly sure if that last one is literally true, but it feels true, so I'll leave it. And has done all of it with her eyes not much higher than five feet from the ground while on her tippy toes. Try that next time you're considering a vessel of reincarnation. The hour I spent with her was fantastic. Even with weird-ass Zoom and more than a thousand miles between us, it was like being personally caffeinated through energetic osmosis. You can learn more about Maria through her website, mariahornbacher.com, or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. Also, look for her on Substack in the near future. She's got some great shit cooking in the convection oven of her consciousness. Also, I gotta mention, while I was editing this episode, I thought about my friend Jessie in Astoria, Oregon. So I sent her a text, asking if she'd ever heard of or read Maria's work. She said that not only had she read her work, but that her partner, Paul, also a friend of mine, was Maria's roommate back in the 90s. We live in an enormous but tiny world, folks. So take a page from Maria's book and go see it interrogate it for more questions, and wink back into the howling void of cosmic pointlessness until you feel, if not relieved, at least pleased with your decision to live life with a little style. Enjoy this episode with our new pal, Maria Hornbacher. Until next time, adios. Cheers. I am so excited, obviously, to talk to you uh, for so many reasons. Likewise. You are um, atypical of a guest on this program because I typically talk to people whose background I kind of know nothing about. And your background is extremely well documented. So I guess I want to start with, um, what are you doing? What, what, are, what are you up to? 
I love that. That's sort of that's sort of like a like a catch up with somebody we saw last 30 years ago. What you've been doing for the last 30 years, um, the, the aspects of my life that are well documented by me, which is the accurate documentation, I suppose, um, are, are from quite a long time ago. You know, I mean, my last book came out in 2011 and I've been busy since then. Um, and so what I'm doing now uh, is I'm traveling. I'm literally traveling all over the world, uh, mostly in the United States, in the contiguous United States, talking to people. I'm mostly wandering around, getting into like not arguments. I wouldn't say there's the occasional, there's the odd dispute, um, but getting into conversations with people about um, what what is the what does it mean to be an American to you right now? What is it? What are you up to? You know, stranger in a dive bar. What are you up to? Stranger at a truck stop diner. Um, and what I'm trying to do, uh, what I'm trying to do is get a feel for the many different countries within this country, um, for what it means to people to be an American, for what it means to them to say, make America this way, make America that way. Um, and a lot of what that conversation centers on is people's identity, uh, their backstory and their beliefs about what it means to be themselves. So a lot of what it I'm doing is asking questions and putting myself in um, awkward, occasionally dangerous situations to find out what what it means to me, I think, at this point to be in this country. Yeah, that's a good question. What what does it mean to you to be in this country? That is a good question. Uh, it, it is more fraught than I understood. I think my own ignorance, as one hopes, my own ignorance is revealed to me in every conversation, right? My own assumptions are revealed to me in every conversation. And the dangers that I feel uh, in the gap between my understanding of self and country and nation and 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 humanity at this time, the distinction, the disconnect in many cases between what it means to be a woman, for example, what it means to be a person of any race, any background, any age, the distinction and the disjunction between my sense of what it means to be call it free uh, or, uh, you know, in a in a democracy or independent. Uh, the mythos of American life is very, very much alive and well, and everyone has a different version. So what it means to me at this point is to be aware that everything I thought may well be wrong and to go forth with the assumption that everything I thought I knew at any given time, but sort of beginner's mind, like as a Buddhist, it's, you know, I'm going out every day going, whatever I thought I knew last night is 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 wiped clean this morning because I may be in, I may be informed otherwise. Are you a Buddhist? I'm not practicing in any in in a formal sense. I mean, I'm a practicing uh, meditator for sure. I have a very I have a very <clears throat> uh, committed, dedicated uh, meditation practice. I certainly am familiar with the texts of Buddhism, of, of which there are many thousands. Uh, but I'm I'm familiar with the core texts, the core precepts, uh, and the practices do for sure inform my life, whether whether I'm interpreting them accurately is always, of course, up for debate. That's the funny thing about Buddhism is, is you know, whatever I thought I knew this morning is wrong by before breakfast. Um, and that uh, that uh, that that, you know, that point of view informs my last book that was written. But waiting uh, really comes from the vantage point of if I think I know I'm done, I can hang up my hat. Right. That also informs my perception as a nonfictionist. You know, it, it informs my belief going into any interview, any writing practices. What I thought I was going to write about won't be it. And if I go in and push myself forward toward my own already determined conclusion, I'll be wrong by paragraph four, right? So if I go forth with like question one, question unfolding into question, those questions kind of endlessly unfolding outward function for me both as a spiritual practice, probably as an ethical framework, and they for sure inform my writing. Yeah. No, I'm not a Buddhist. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can arrive at that. Uh, everything you think you know is wrong before breakfast without Buddhism. So, I, I, right, you know, right. That's yeah. that's so certainty. What yes. a trick! What a funny trick! You know, uh, you and I, I had the, the pleasure of having kind of a pre-interview conversation with you, and one of the things we immediately touched on 
I think I've, I've phrased it as something like an, an epidemic of certainty in our. That is, and I love the phrase. Yes, in in our culture, mm-hmm. um, and and not just uh, American culture, but in culture writ large. I think that's one of the the things that um, this this type of ape that we are clings to is a story. <laughs> we we need to know. We need answers because we're we don't know shit. But never mind before breakfast. By the time you get to dinner, you know even less. Right, but right. The, so the 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 propensity for creatures like us to to glom on to certainty, I get it, right? But uh, what you're doing, challenging your assumptions, trying to find out where your certainty is tripping you up. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you found in people with their certainty and their assumptions? And and how I know this is a tricky question, but how do you chisel your way? into their certainty and find where they're vulnerable? I would say, first of all, if that were my intent, and it is sometimes, let's be honest, I am doing perhaps them a disservice. And because what I see as the epidemic of certainty is a fundamental desire for hope. And that isn't flawed, right? Like the hope, you know, I I have an old friend who used to, who was in marketing, who said, you know, hope is not a strategy. And indeed, hope is not a strategy. (laughs) But to proceed, one has to, whether fallaciously or factually, have reason to get, to have hope, right? To proceed today, I have to believe there's a reason to freaking do it. And that's Camus and the absurd and like, there's not. That's the joke. That's the funny part of being human. There's not a reason. There's not meaning to life. So you invent it. You impose it. And a lot of exactly as you're saying, a lot of the ways we do that is to write stories for ourselves that end happy. Like we give ourselves these wonderful, hopeful, happy endings. I see that as the fundamental flaw, asset, capacity to be in 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 romantic relationships is this could be not what it is, but what it might one day be. Right. Like and and I, that doesn't mean relationships aren't valuable. It means that they hinge on fundamentally a fantasy that one day if I do this and this and this, I'll get the result I want, which is a uh, connection. Right. Like and connection is possible. But again, we're always forging it. We're not hoping for it. We're forging it in the day right today. And so, you know, if I'm hoping to chisel away at people's structures of hope and find vulnerability in that and make their structures fall. That's unkind. And I do it, right? I'm doing that some of the time. And is that fair? Not really. And so I try to pull back from that and instead chisel away at my own structures of faith, of fundamentalism. There's some, you know, I have a certain liberal fundamentalism that is as flawed intellectually and rationally as anybody's far left, far right, far this, far that. Fundamentalism is is a rational failure. Um, and, and my own structures of faith hinge on my own desire and commitment to ignore facts all the time. So if what I talk to people about is simply what, what I when I ask them, what do you hope for this country? Many of them will come back and say, this didn't happen. That didn't happen. This isn't failed. It's not the way it should be. And I say, but what do you hope? Do you have hope? And so actually what I'm doing is trying to get people to say, this is what I'm missing. This is what I'm afraid of. This is what I lost. And that I see more than anything. I see people grieving an idea the way one does after a relationship that never would have worked, doesn't work, right? Grieving an idea of what I could have made it if it would just do what I said. Uh, And if this country would just be what it said it was going to be, this is a country built on land that was stolen from the people who were here first by bodies that were stolen from another continent. And the fact that now white people are saying it's not the great America. Somebody told me it would be if I used everyone else's body and labor. And I'm like, how surprising that that's not 
turning out the way you'd <laughs> hoped that it might have. And I'm here going, but it is where we are. You, yeah. me, all the bodies that got stolen and, and exploited. Right here we are. What do you hope for this country? Is there a way to hope? I'm not myself sure there is. But what I am uncovering is people's desire to believe in an idea and to, in doing that, disregard a whole series of facts. And that scares me as a rationally, I'm not a rational person, but I hope reason and ethic can guide me. And I see people moving toward emotion and fear and desire rather than reason. Right. No, I, and, and I appreciate that. And, and I, I may have most certainly have phrased my question poorly. Oh, I don't think so. It gave us a new idea. Well, I was thinking about when I said chisel, I'm, I, I do woodworking, I think relief, not mm. destroy. You know, to, to chisel, I, I don't mean to disabuse anyone of their notions because right. I'm not certain that mine are correct, you know. Right, right, um, right. Even though I, I certain I have them and I'll stick to them like an idiot. Right. But right. Uh, <laughs> what, I, what I meant was like um, finding that soft spot in mm -hmm. them where you see mm -hmm. where there's certainty. You know, like you're saying, the, the rationality mm -hmm. falls apart. And then there's just, there is that like, maybe hope is the irrational thing, you know, that, that we have. Right, right. That's and, and that's, that's yeah, that's the vulnerable. That's the, that's mm -hmm. the sweet spot mm -hmm. where you really mm -hmm. get to, I'll give you an example. Um, I did something similar to what you're doing. Um, mm -hmm. I tr my wife and I traveled for two years, just sort of looking for whatever we could find. And we, we met every single type of person we could meet. And, you know, I, I live in the Bay Area place with which you are very familiar. Yes, it yes. is a silo of, I mean, a certain type of thinking, you know, yes. especially politically. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found myself in Alaska sitting at a bar with this gentleman who had very, very different views. Yes. And we had such a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was this man was a Vietnam veteran. And, you know, he had very strong mm -hmm. opinions about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, yeah, I, I'm not a fan. I don't like the guy. I don't like the way he acts, but I don't, I don't wish him ill. You know, I don't want him to die. I don't, you know, like all this stuff and, and like getting into that conversation with that guy and finding his humanity. He eventually at one point, and this is a, like I said, a Vietnam, Vietnam vet, he, he cried, not because he was drunk, but like, we just, we just found a way to connect on a level where he could tell me stories that were so vulnerable and beautiful that if I would have stuck to some sort of, you're wrong, I've, I'm right. So are you, I feel like you're, you're doing that kind of thing as well. You're getting in, I mean, you challenge, you're, you're tough. You're tough. You're not mm -hmm. a, you're not a, I'm not a shrinking violet. You're not a shrinking violet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're going into these situations as like a, a strong person mm -hmm. who's fighting against a vulnerability, right? right I mean, the, right, the, right. the perceived vulnerability of women. Perceived vulnerability, yeah. Yeah. So what, what, when you're in those situations where you're, because I've heard your Instagram posts where you're funny, you're kind of fucking with people in a, in a, <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> in a cool way to make them laugh. There's a, there's a desire to bring joy in that, in that frustration that I'm reporting. Is that you're in a lot of times it is. And sometimes, so like when I'm talking to people, I want to, I want to address two things that you just said are, that are so powerful about, for example, about Donald Trump, I think his genius has been in tapping into people's fear and hope. Mm 
has been tapping into them emotionally. He's a demagogue, right? I mean, he's a figure that can be invested with everyone's hope, desire, anger, rage, like he's a repository and he is himself empty. Like his biographer reported that he has no inner life. That makes him perfect as a demagogue, right? Because it allows me to project anger. It allows someone else to project hope, savior complex. Like he's empty. And so he serves as a repository. Of course, that doesn't make him a leader, but it does make him useful to people emotionally. And that's what I see happening when I walk into rooms. A lot of what I see exactly as you're talking about, people are ready to talk. They are ready to connect. And so uh, it, in some spaces, I walk in and and the easiest, uh, the easiest way to diffuse what happens when I walk into a room is to be funny. Um, because a lot of times, when I walk into a room anywhere in the country, you know, this isn't visible for my Instagram posts. I push five feet. I'm tiny. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm very small, but I also carry an energy that a, a lot of people, male, female, and otherwise feel challenged by. And something about that sometimes serves as an opening, right? Because people like I walk into a room, I, this is an example from North Dakota, walk into a bar. I literally want a burger to read my book. I just want to read my book and, and, and eat a burger by myself in peace. I'm armed to do that. I'm carrying a book and a gun. So like and, and I'm not with the gun, you know, anti-enthusiast. I, I, I don't wish to get into the gun debate. Those people are not traveling by themselves as a five foot tall woman. Right. That's not what they're doing. <laughs> Um, and so, like, you know, I mean, and people, when they say to you, you know, if you need a gun in this situation, and this is gun gun uh, safety advocates will say, don't bring a gun anywhere. You wouldn't need a gun. Don't go to that place. Well, that's the world for me right now. Like, And that's also the world we're in, especially in certain parts of the country. So I walk in, I have a book, I have a gun and I've got cash for a burger. The thing that happens is there's a pause, like the record screech to a stop. And it's not because I'm a 10 foot model. It's something about my energy. And it's the fact that I'm a woman alone in a fundamentally wild west place, right? I walk in, the barmaid leans across the bar and says, literally never met this woman in my life, leans across and says, what are you doing walking in here like you're walking the wrong way down a one-way stop in traffic? No shit. And I said, I was gonna get a burger if it's all the same to you, baby, and you're gonna get a real shit tip, but I want my burger, you know? And so suddenly, boom, we're in it. Why? Right, why? Not only why did she ask me that, why did I respond that way? Partly because I'm tired of it. Right. But that ultimately creates an opening either for a fight or for a conversation with somebody. Right. Like there's a door that just swung open like it's saloon doors I banged on through. And it doesn't matter what the country feels like to me is a Wild West movie with its racism, with its misogyny, with its baseline violence proceeding from the assumption of threat and responding with violence before anything's happened. And so that's what I feel in the country all the time. The only way I can meet that and find out what's going on is to know I am able to protect myself emotionally, mentally, physically. To walk into those spaces, I have to be prepared to absorb that conflict one way or another. Right. Like, And to do that, it does allow me to have conversations like you're describing. Right. Like to have that conversation, I have to go there. I cannot sit behind my screen and be mad at Trump. I don't know what's going on. Why does that veteran feel that way? How do I know if I read about it on Instagram, right? Like, so that's not to go there. I have to find out. And that poses a threat to anyone, anyone. And that is okay with me, but only because I feel safe in my own skin, right? I feel safe and I feel tough, but I also have to have enough vulnerability to listen, not to start the fight before it's begun, right? So, And not to back down from... Uh, whether it's going to be a conflict or some unique loving thing where you suddenly 
Yeah, like you said, the door flings open and you're just you're walking in. Right. Armed. Armed to the book. And ready to chat. That's the thing. It's like if what I'm not ready, I'm not I'm the gun's not cocked. I'm ready to chat. And a lot of it depends on literally putting myself in situations where my presence is out of the ordinary. A solo woman of 50 years anywhere in the country traveling is out of place anywhere, anywhere. Right. So that poses a challenge, though I don't intend it. And that was the first thing I realized when I was doing this traveling was I don't intend to be a challenge. My lifestyle choice, the decision to travel solo, the decision to be solo poses a challenge to a master narrative where white ladies get married and are settled down by 50. That has not been my path. I went another route. I went a lot of different routes. And so anyone who went the path and worked because they believed in the path, in the inherent value of the path of marriage, a partnership, of raising children, of of working a job for 40 years, I believe in the inherent value of that as well. I don't believe it's the only value. I don't believe it's the only path. It's not the path many people I know have taken. But there is a master narrative where that is supposed to be, Mario, when are you going to settle down? I guarantee you never. Never. And that's not the right answer, right? Like that opens another question for people because it says to many people, are you questioning my path? I'm like, no, again, I'm walking my own. Right. And that is hard for people to hear. It's really hard for people to hear that we are all not each other. That's very hard for people to hear. Well, I, I, don't you feel like sometimes I know this as an insecure person that uh, the, the need for certainty is born of an insecurity. You know, if, yes. if they're challenged by you being five foot uh, and free, you mm-hmm, know, and right. not, you know, not tied to whatever they're tied to. And that's not a judgment call. I don't judge it at all. I, man, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be in a house. Right. You know, right I spent right. many years traveling. Sticks and bricks, we call that. The roadies call that. Sticks and bricks houses. Man, yeah. they're nice. You know, you know, like a reliable shower, mm-hmm. bathroom. That's the same, you know, like mm-hmm. there's a lot of nice stuff in it. There is, but, yeah. But, you know, the, there's trade-offs for either. There's no judgment. But yeah, that, right, that's right. Uh, certainty and insecurity are are inevitable bedfellows. They just have to kind of happen. So I, I want to get to um, so you. You've had a lot of lives. I mean, you've been <laughs> like physically a different person. Many times, yes. Many yes. times, many physical. I've never been taller than this, though. Yeah, <laughs> that's you know, I. Well, I've shrunk if, a little. But, yeah, you know. as as the hair on top of my head thins, I'm seeing all these scars. I'm six three. Oh my god! Well, yeah. maybe I might do. Six, so I've got scars. Used to the top of door frames. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I've got so many dumbass things that have happened to the top of my head that just <laughs> wouldn't have ever happened to you. So, you know. Uh, oh god. So I want to get to you know you've you've been many people. We're gonna take a quick detour back in time. Oh, yeah, yeah, you right. were you were living in a home. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a steady job. You're a professor or uh, you worked in a university. What were you yes, doing when you decided to travel? And in journalism. Yeah. Yeah. Writing, yeah. writing related, teaching, teaching, mm-hmm. writing, all of it writing related. Yeah. When did you decide to hop on the road? That came exactly. Uh, it came the day that Roe fell. Um, I had been I've been restless. And so, yes, I have lived in houses. Uh, it's been at least a decade since I lived somewhere longer than six months. Um, and so like I, I at some point had to identify that I, it was time to stop signing leases uh, and, and and breaking them to sign another lease and, and finding subletters over and over and over every few months. Right. And I'm like, stop it. Sit down. And I literally, again, went to North Dakota, rented a farmhouse, a, a four bedroom farmhouse by my goddamn self and sat in it and was like, Maria, sit down. You are grounded until you figure out what the hell you're doing with space. So I was in that questioning process like I had abandoned ship 
with the cities. Uh, you know, I mean, like many people, the gig economy, I've been an adjunct professor for much of my my teaching life. And I was at that time and we had gone online. So I didn't have to be anywhere. So I kind of didn't want to be anywhere. Off I go to North Dakota, sit in a farmhouse by myself with my cat and my dog and think about what I've done. Right. So I'm grounded and I'm thinking, where would you go if you could go anywhere? And I kept thinking everywhere. I would go everywhere. How would I go everywhere and afford rent? And then I went, I don't I can't afford rent now. I can't afford my rent anywhere. Right. Because I'm a gig economist. Right. I'm a writer. I'm editing. I'm teaching. I'm modeling. I'm acting. I'm, I'm whatever. Like, who cares what I'm doing? I'm just fine, trying to pay rent at this point and find to basically buy myself time to write. That's the upshot. Got to keep a roof over my head. And then I went, do I really, though? Do I really have to keep a roof over my head? Because that is taking 90 percent of my income and buying me 10 percent of my time to write. And then I went, I don't have to keep a roof over my head. If I could get out of this sticks and bricks game, the housing economy is the biggest suck on anybody's finance, right? You live in the Bay Area, you would know. And so like that drains our resources and we act like it's necessary. Like we act like we buy in because that's the economy, right? Like how do you how do you buy groceries if that's what groceries cost and you don't have that? You don't. You steal them. And I went, how do I pay rent if I can't? And I went, I stop. I step outside of that system. And so I started looking at what are all the systems I'm buying into? For example, adjunct teaching is an unbelievably, unbelievably, um, you know, a capitalistic system. Like you're, you're buying everybody's graduate education for almost no money. You're buying highly trained, highly skilled people who know the most things they could know about that field. Right. And you hire them at less than minimum wage to teach the next generation of indebted scholars how to do what they already do, but won't be able to afford to do because they're going to become adjuncts. So it's a great system for somebody, not me. So, right. So I left it. Right. So suddenly I didn't need to be in that system anymore. I just needed to keep some way of keeping myself physically warm enough, fed and, and mobile. And so I'm like, well, that means I'm going on the road. That's how that happened. And then Roe fell and I was having a conversation with my mom, which I'm, I'm at my mom's house now. Um, we were talking and she was involved. I mean, my mom's 81. So she was a part of that whole, that whole time. She also got pregnant in 1973 with me just too late, right? Just too late. And here I am. And all my life I've known that. And all my life I have admired profoundly my mother more than anyone else on the planet for, for sure. Like she taught me how to be who I am and, and I could be better. I could be her. Um, and so I never fail to understand what it cost her to be a mother never failed to understand what it cost her to be a wife. It cost her, above all else, her freedom. She's had a brilliant life. She's she's brilliant. She's had a brilliant career. She's she's a she's an incredible person. So it hasn't cost her everything. It's not like she was tied to the stove by her apron strings. She has proceeded to be as, if not more amazing, right? But it cost her freedom. It cost her time. It cost her a lot of sleep. I was not easy to raise. And I was out by 14, right? And 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 so like she has spent a lot making it possible for me to be in this world, including fighting for Roe. And then Roe fucking fell. And we're sitting on her porch and she is dead still. She sits still as much as I do. So she's dead still, dead white. And I'm trying to think of topics to like change the subject. I'm like, so Roe just fell. Sorry about all your work in the world. Uh, and, and you're sitting here facing the consequence of it having not been there in the first place, right? And I'm trying to come up with subjects. So I asked her, what are you going to do when your husband dies? Which was not small talk that I was intent. <laughs> but she did laugh. And she said, I don't know. It depends on where you are. And I'm like, I'm not going to be anywhere. I'm going to be anywhere. Where do you want to be? Let's go. And she looked at me suddenly and she said, what do you mean? 
And I said, I want to get a camper and hit the road. I was just mouthing off. And she goes, I will help you do that. And I had no money, right? Like she's coming from, she's the silent generation. So she has earned and been able to save because that was the economy. And she's looking at me. She knows I'm always two steps away from homeless, right? This woman bought me a camper and literally gave me a new life. That's what happened. That's how I hit the road. That's a beautiful story. To humanize your parent. Mm. You know, when you stop blaming them for everything and mm. realize yeah. they're just another person. You're just oh, right. they're, they're, right. they're, they're a person who had another person. You know, a, yeah, lot of, right. a lot of people never grow out of that. And they, they infantilize sad. themselves. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, that the relationship with their government is the same. Sure, yeah. You yep, know, yep. The, the, the government is this other thing. Your parents mm -hmm. are these mm -hmm. other things. Mm -hmm. Like you mm -hmm. see you see your mom as a woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A smart, capable, kick-ass woman who made her way, right? Yeah, And yeah. Uh, is able to gift you this beautiful thing in this oh God, lovely twice. way. 14 times, 500 times, gave me it at her own expense, you know, to her freedom, to her comfort. Not everyone feels this way about their family, about their parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, never mind the, the warm feelings you have towards her, but just, just the, the plain seeing her just as a lady, yeah. as another person in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know about you. I, I, I get the sense that you probably do. Most of my friends are older. Yes. Yeah. Many of mine are. Yeah. 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 But the person I spend the most time with is your mom's age, 83, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I learned, I don't know what, how I did it, but young, mm -hmm. that my mom was just a lady. Right, right, right. And I could appreciate yeah. her story and like what she went through to be a, who she was. And yeah, yeah, it took yeah. me a little longer with my dad. You know, it's like, wait, he's just a guy. Fuck, what am I thinking? You know? Just a guy doing guy stuff, right? T trying to be a decent guy. Right. Yeah. But you you carry that through elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It's not just, you don't just afford it to your mom. No, that's You true. afford yeah. it to that bartender. Like, okay, you're just a lady. You're, okay, you're being kind of cunty to me, but let's just roll through this. Like, right, right, right. But here we are. Like, let's get a burger on the table and talk. Yeah. <laughs> like, at least can you feed me? I saw a thing the other day. It's like, everyone is facing a battle you know nothing about. Yes. Because you don't know what's going on with that bartender. You don't know what's going mm -hmm. on with somebody. So I, I, I really appreciate that about your approach. And yeah. so you're on the road. You're doing this journalism, and it's got a name that I love. Yeah. What's your project? The project is called One Last Bitch. Uh, notes on going solo at the end of the world. Yeah. So that's the name. And it's, can you talk about what the the scope and the goal and that stuff? Yeah. Are? Yeah. You know, initially, you know, because I'm coming out of publishing, initially I thought, well, obviously I'm writing a book. And then, and yes, this partly is a book, but a lot of what I'm about to be doing is I'm I'm going to start, I'm going to go live with a Substack at the beginning of the year. Substack is a platform, as, as some of your listeners know, some don't, uh, where a lot of journalists and other writers are going to create ongoing content like their reporting is going to Substack, and so by by all means, folks, if you haven't if you haven't encountered that yet, go check it out. So what I will be doing is is three separate things. One is text based, which which is the Substack. Some is going to be audio, uh, which are reports both from the from the road and readings of the work that I'm writing about it. Um, because I I do some you know there's a lot also of my of my work that has not been provided on audio, and I'm going to be recording that and creating audio books that have, that do not yet exist. And the third component will be a video audio component like a YouTube channel. So basically, step by step, what I'm doing right now is creating a platform for the, all the types of learners and listeners, right? Like, so the types of learners, some people love, love to read Substack. Some people would much rather be in their car or on the treadmill or lifting, listening to that report from 
their comfort, right? Like some people want to watch this happen and 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 thrive on the interaction that I will be having with people like you when I when I when when we trade spots, uh, you know that's different listeners. I'm trying to reach a broader net than the people who are going to go read the fucking New York Times. Publishing to me has failed, like failed, and it too has become a system of gatekeeping that only profits the owners. It profits the profiteers, of course. It does not profit the reader. It does not benefit the author. It does not even privilege the writing, right? What's getting published is what publishing thinks can make them a billion dollars. That's what's coming out through mainstream publishing. The best work, honestly, is coming out through independent and university presses, and they don't have the goddamn money, right? They don't have any money. I have a, there's a brilliant book coming out next week by Jeremy Norton called Trauma Sponges. Uh, it's about 22 years as a firefighter in Minneapolis. It concludes with the murder of George Floyd. Right. So he's looking at serious social justice shit. He has been in it for 22 years. That book is coming out. He can't get the fucking bookstores to call him back because the publicists can't afford to call them for him. That book needs to get out. So our work is important. It continues to be important. All of these journalists, all of these writers have work, are doing the work. The publishing industry is literally cock blocking writing at this point. And I am going rogue. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, you're you're a good bridge for that sort of thing, because you know you don't want to just preach to your audience. I mean, for, uh, preach is a dumb word in this instance because you're not preaching; you're exploring. You're being a real journalist. You're, I mean, yeah, you're in the story. It's gonzo journalism for sure, but you're not. You're not the whole story. No, you're the conduit for it, and uh, you know that you are a, a lady in a truck. Right. You know, uh, that endears you immediately. To a certain subset of the population. That's true. That's probably true. <laughs> Girls who want trucks. For sure. Yeah, you're a lady <laughs> in a truck with a gun. Yeah, yeah. Um, immediately opens you up to like, okay, this isn't just someone siloed in a liberal like what the conflation of liberal idea is in some people's minds. You know that you, yeah, you're out there in the world. You're being open, but not a pushover, and you have you know very liberal ideals for sure that, for sure. that are i love the idea of that being bridged because that's the problem it is. you know like that we're not it's the gap we're not getting along we're thinking these other people's ideas shouldn't exist or something like that i, I don't get that right you got you gotta have them all because we don't know who the fuck is right i mean you, i got a pretty i got some i got some ideas yeah exactly exactly and when you said what's what are the hopes i fucking i have no idea what would i hope right. for I would hope for a sharp, sharp increase in the level of self-awareness in all beings. Yes, yes. Well, I think, you know, the level of awareness is the awareness that you have blind spots and somebody needs to be back there to help you. Yeah. Like, and that is what we are missing at this point is we are careening forward with no rear view, no back cam, no one. We're not listening to anyone. And that doesn't mean I'm listening for somebody else to tell me what's right. It means I have to be aware of context. I mean, what I've always taught is, is the journalism of context. The narrator, even the storyline isn't the story. That is the piece, but that the entire purpose of writing, of communicating, of being on the fucking planet is to look at the context you're in, right? So like, to be able to say this is what should be happening, that immediately is the, is where, you know, if I stick on what I think should be happening, I have w walked right past what is happening. Right. And that means I've completely missed the boat on what anybody else might want, care about, need, be concerned about. And I've also missed the spot where they will trip me up until I listen. I cannot get where I'm going if I do not acknowledge what is 
happening. And what is happening is we are all siloed in this belief of this isn't right. I want more. I want better. Yeah. Like finding your blind spots, talking to other people who don't agree with you and just just being a witness of other people's behavior. Right, right. Is like the best blind spot detector out there. Yes. Okay. So you're one last bitch. Fantastic name. Thank you. So it means so many things. Yeah. And what's the subtitle? That Notes on going solo at the end of the world. That's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think speaks to a couple other elements of it. Yeah. My, my, my wife and I have done a lot of different types of traveling. Uh, we rode our bikes across the country and and we drove from, from California to Alaska to um, Costa Rica. Wow. And uh, with our dog, who's great. Amazing. And we, we met so many different types of travelers. Yeah, yeah. You know, from retirees to people who are just, you know, disillusioned to, you know, the, the influencer who's you know, van-lifing, that, that whole thing. Yep, yep, yep. You know, and it's all, it's all great. But I, I remember meeting this one woman, we were in Baja, and she was on her bicycle, and she'd ridden from Florida. So we, we were just on vacation, dicking around. We met her right. and, and immediately just fell in love with her as a person. And she was so vulnerable. Yeah. You know, on a bicycle in Mexico. Sure. I mean, she was unarmed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. disarmingly, I don't want to use the word goofy, mm-hmm. but like kind of this sort of aloof and sort of thing. It was so beautiful to me to see how she got along. She had no plan, right? Right. And uh, we, when we traveled through Mexico late, you know, years later in our, our van, we stopped in the city of Oaxaca and took classes at her Spanish school that she'd started. She did not speak Spanish when we met her. Wow. Holy moly, that's remarkable. And that, you know, she comes from Florida, and, you know, which is very politically, whatever. There's there's many different types of Florida, many states within that state. Exactly, exactly. But to come to that conclusion that, uh, you know, here's where my path is. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I love that. And I, I the uh, notes on going solo, we are all solo mm-hmm. in a weird mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Like our phones are, we're all strangers in private. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got all these goofball connections, but there's... the everybody's alone. Yes. And also connected. You know, I mean, so like this, can I speak really briefly to the solo element of this? You know, the initial idea I had was to be writing about my decision to no longer partner, to no longer be, I've been married three times. Uh, I've been in a bazillion good and bad relationships uh, with, with intimate partners. I've had great, I have a great, and may, may you live in interesting times. I've had an interesting love life. And a lot of that has taught me to be able to listen, to be able to build, to be able to connect, to be able to bridge distance. And and a lot of that has been very, very valuable. They haven't even been short marriages. I'm 50, right? So like, you know, that's, these have been valuable connections. I've learned an extraordinary amount about them. And at some point when, when we emerged from the pandemic, at which time I was already solo, uh, I began thinking about like, you know, all my married friends are saying you should date again. And I'm thinking to myself, but why? And they're like, well, wouldn't you enjoy the companionship? I'm like that. That hasn't been my experience of it. My experience has been is that is extraordinary labor as a woman um, to be in heterosexual partnerships. Uh, And and that doesn't mean that's true for everybody, but it does mean there is a way in which um, the default in heterosexual relationships is that women are doing the emotional work, a lot of the domestic work, and they're also doing their own work. And I realized, okay, so to what extent are these relationships contributing to what I believe is my work in the world, which is to write and to teach? They're not. They're they're making it impossible in many cases to have any time to do that or to have the uh, financial stability to do that because I'm so busy taking care of partners in ways that aren't huge, but that add up to they would do better in a bachelor pad alone or with someone who is, I'd say, younger. 
right? Who, who has time to do that learning for herself and, and wants to do it, right? Like I've learned so many things from these relationships. And one of them is that I do not wish to raise any more men. I, I didn't have children on purpose. It wasn't an accident that I didn't have children because I didn't want to raise people. I wanted to write and to travel. And then I went, well, if what I want to do is write and travel. And then people say, well, isn't it better than nothing? I'm like, no, but nothing is me. I'm quite a good companion. I get along with myself extremely well. I'm also pretty honest with myself when I'm like, Marie, you are being a shit. Don't think anymore. You don't get to think today. Like, don't talk. Don't think. Don't interact with people. <clears throat> you are impossible. Shut it down. Go to bed. You know? And so, like, I'm not easy on myself, but I also do have compassion for the fact that I'm a human being and I'm growing, right? I can't ask that much compassion from another person. Actually, it's not fair. And when I'm giving them all the grace to be as unable to do their emotional work as one has had to do, as I have had to do in many relationships, I don't want to. I want to be giving that grace to my writing. I want to be giving that grace to my friends, many of whom are solo women, because we have made a lot of women. This is literally a trend to call it. A lot of women are saying, I uh, I have my own life's work. Um, if If you cannot contribute to that, I appreciate that you are pretty and you are lovely and you are funny and you are great and you're great to hang around and I can get laid without you. I really can. Yeah. I, I mean, I, not to be put too fine point on it, but like I'm not hurting for physical companionship. I'm, what I'm hurting for is time to work. And that's what I eventually chose. And that's what I was going to write about. But then that solo element of interacting socially with a world that is built on an idea that the utmost happiness comes from romantic love. That has not been my experience. It's also not a fantasy I continue to feed like for uh, everybody needs that. Not everybody needs that. Not everybody thrives in that setting. Lots of women, in fact, don't. So um, I started going, what is it? Why does this solo life seem to destabilize social settings in a way that's very complicated and interesting? And so I wind up having to diffuse those settings by saying, just because I'm alone, I'm not a free radical here to destroy anything. I'm here to literally eat a burger and read a book yeah. is what I'm here to do every day. Yeah. Like I love burgers and I love to read. So that's all I'm here to do, folks. And that creates a moment again where there is gender current running every direction, where I'm a threat to one, a temptation to another, a question for somebody else, a confusing factor. I'm like a cipher, right? I am then the site of everybody's projected emotional hopes, fears, concerns. Right. So it is about going solo into the world also. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love the distinction between alone and lonesome, mm -hmm. I think is not stressed enough in the world. No, me neither. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing more lonesome than being in a partnership that you're where you're unhappy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or in some cases in a partnership where you're like, I, I like the elements of this partnership that contribute to my life. But why are you still here? Like I'm you're taking up an extraordinary amount of space and doing everything you want to do, like which you can do at your house. Yeah, it's tricky, man. Like being a being a partner. My, my wife was just traveling for uh, for three weeks yeah. in Spain and Morocco. Nice. And I was so thrilled for her right yeah yeah very yeah. i mean like i because she's not done that before you know with uh she, she and a buddy went together yeah that's awesome to me I, I was like it didn't even pop into my mind to question that or be like like i was no. thrilled thrilled with it that's very rare that's very rare and we've been together for we, we met on my 21st birthday we've been together a long last time oh nice 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 um nice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we've been many different people and then in many different relationships of course right right the distinction between a partner mm -hmm and a participant right you know like kind of a needy participant there are there's a lot to learn mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's a lot to learn about being alone uh, and how to not be lonesome alone which uh, what a great life skill to learn oh my god yeah 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 
But 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 learning how to be a partner mm-hmm. and not a a, a drain on resources. Because yeah, I mean, you're gonna be, you're gonna be. You are right. Because I'm, I'm needy. You're needy. Everybody's needy. For sure, of course, of course. But learning where, you know, when to ask and when not to is, is pretty sweet. Right, right, right. I think to that element, really briefly on that is like, you know, when I've asked people, okay, you know, when they say, "What are you looking for?" and I say, "Nothing," we're just having coffee, and they're like, "Well, I'm looking for these things," and I'm like, "I'm sure you can find that uh, person, but I, I am here to know what you want to offer." Actually, if you're a great conversationalist, you're fantastic in bed. You like to go dancing. You travel well. Great. Right. We have something to talk about. If you if none of those things are on the list, I'm OK. Like, I don't mind you, but but I don't need you because I can do all those things without you. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. And so, like, it's not there has to be that added value. And this yeah. presumption that I'm going to a relationship to get something is why relationships fail. Sure. Yeah. I mean, expectation is the birth parent of disappointment. Yes. Right. I want to talk to you about identity Um, mm-hmm. because I know you're you're busy. You're a busy person, mm-hmm. busy lady, busy woman. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, your identity is as a woman. Yes. Uh, I know our time. Uh, I've already had you for 45 minutes here. I'm good. I'm, I'm good. so so grateful for it. Okay. Um, but you you are you're out there challenging people's identity. You know, I'm a tough guy. Here's this little lady. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever, all that bullshit. Yeah. But you know, there's so many questions around identity today. Identity politics. You know, gender, race, all this stuff. Yeah. I'm a white guy. Mm-hmm. A white guy from the South. I'm from Mississippi. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right. And I was born. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I met. I met a woman yesterday. We started talking in a coffee shop. She's like, "Oh, you wrote a book." I was like, "Yeah." And she's like, "I just wrote a book." I'm like, "Great. What is it about?" And she told me, and she's from uh, Nicaragua. I mean, a life of abject struggle, right? To be where she is, and she's doing great. She's thriving, right? Oh, amazing. She's like, "What's your book about?" I was like, "Man, it is like the opposite. I've had the easiest. Yeah. It's a book about making fun of myself for fucking up constantly." in an extremely easy place to, to do it, you know? I've yeah, had the yeah, privilege yeah. of being a fuck-up. Yeah, it's a great line. Yeah, yeah. So I, I got a temper. It's not that I can't have an opinion on identity or how those things go, but I understand where mine comes from, right? Sure, 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 sure. Right, right. It's from a very easy road. So I, I haven't had the challenges of identity that, that other people have. Where where are you landing with that? Are you, are you finding, are you getting yelled at? Mm-hmm. By by women mm-hmm. or by non-binary people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are you finding common ground? Like, what's where, where, what's happening with you? Yes, and <laughs> um, you know, I think you know part of that. The, there are so many hats we wear, right? Like, there are so many ways of identifying any one of ourselves, and those those shift in priority in list of priority. Like, right now in the world, uh, you know, my identity as a woman is foremost probably because it is, as you said, you know, when you say. You know, you know, you meet this guy and here's this little lady and that challenges his identity. I'm, and that's the thing. Why does my existence challenge him at all? Like, right. I'm not challenged by him being a dude. Like, he's just a dude. Right. And so that's sort of like the assumption that other people's identity in any way uh, matters to our own. Right. Like, why am I defining myself as against you, Andrew? Like, why am I defining myself as against anyone? Like, in isolation, what I am first and foremost, actually is a writer, probably is a, is a thinker, right? But and out in the woods, I'm also a hiker, a survivalist, someone trying to learn things fast. It's a steep learning curve to be on your own. And, and, and there's a lot of labor, like I feel powerful, I feel physically powerful, all of those inform my identity. But then I go into the social world and my identity necessarily shifts because there are elements of my identity that in society become relevant and aren't relevant to me alone, right? But I'm in society to a point, right? They also change if I'm in relationship, which I don't wish to be because like 
I don't wish to define myself as that or in that way or as against or according to this thing. So like when I walk into a into a into a 12 step meeting, I say, hi, I'm Marian. I'm a blank. Right. When I walk into a classroom, I'm Prof H, right? Like I'm I'm Professor Humbacher and people are asking me questions that I'm like out in the woods, don't need to know any of the answers to. But in context, identity is only relevant in context. Yes. It's only relevant in context because if any of us were given a year, take the Desert Fathers statement, you know, somebody said to one of the Desert Fathers, one of the hermetics, uh, you know, what do I need to know, Father? And the man said, you know, the, the Desert Father said, go to your cell. Your cell will teach you everything. That's what I'm trying to do is learn what it is outside of society so that I have something of any value to bring back into it. Right. Like, why do I want to be taking again from society? I've had a relatively easy road in many ways, different from yours. My identity has not fundamentally been what's made my life difficult. It has been my inability to exist as I am, which is odd. It has been my desire to accord with society in ways I can't and won't. It has been to fit into molds I can't and won't ever fit into. So my identity can't be defined by I'm never going to fit in. It can be defined, though, by these are the things I have to offer. Even this world that does not give me a spot, I can find a spot. That's it. That's identity. Yeah. It's a funny thing, identity, because we are putting aside philosophy, things like free will. Right, right, right. What are you? We, we don't really even fully understand how our consciousness works. That's still up for debate. No, not at all. It's crazy. Not at all. And that, you know, the more granular you're able to see the physical world, the less defined it is. Yes. You know, so just, I mean, on a physical level, the distance between impulse and echo is like nothing, yes. right? We're kind yeah. of this in this yeah. soup, this morass of just yeah, right. things. Consciousness soup, yeah. <laughs> right, to, you know, sort of gate yourself off and say, I am at this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important. It's important in a way to have an identity, a point of view. Yes, I agree. I agree. I, I appreciate a point of view, but when it's a gated community of point of view, Rather than, because what you just described, it, what's funny is you were talking about partnership. You are a partner to all. Right. I try to be. You don't want to just take Mm-mm. from the world. No. It's given me a lot, right? Like I landed easy. I landed with brilliant people who would give me as many books as I ever hoped to have. That gave me cultural capital that can never be measured. Never. That allows me freedom in the world that nothing else affords, not money, not any, you know, I mean, none of that privilege that is material gives me what those books and that learning, the freedom to learn gave me, you know, and so I better give back. Yeah, you're giving back, but you're, you're, what I get from you is you're not necessarily out looking for answers. You're looking for better questions, Yes. which to me is like the best use of intellectual capital and time and like effort. To, to find the better question. And the way you answered my goofball question about identity was, I think, telling in that it wasn't like men or men or women or women or, or that nothing matters. It's like, hey, look, whatever it matters to you and it matters in context. That's it. You were saying you teach on context. You teach writing about context. And that that's one of the things I feel like it's pretty swept under is context. I agree. People are on a hair trigger of offense. Yes, yes. Without taking into consideration context because they just they have a a notion about how identity works for them and that's it. Yes. Yes. And I think that I mean that I I was educated in the identity politics era of the 90s, right? And it was it was throwing intellectual inquiry at that time and it's doing so now, but that doesn't mean because identity and aspects of identity aren't important. It would be absurd for a white woman to say identity isn't important. It would be absurd, right? Like I'm white, that's giving me privileges alone. 
I'm, I'm a woman that's giving me different challenges and privileges that, that I, if I am blind to them, so those aspects, but they, so there's, to me, <clears throat> this was a very interesting conversation. I was having a conversation with a woman in the South who gave me for whatever reason, and I'm writing a screenplay about this right now, gave me a tarot reading. I've never had one before. I'm like, this is the strangest experience of my life. And she pulled all cards. I have no idea what she's reading. She pulls a card and she says this, and she had already, we'd already established that she wasn't glad I existed at this, your future, your future card is the end of beauty, failed dreams, this, that, and the other thing. And I thought, well, failed dreams. And what I said was failed dreams sounds really disappointing. I, you know, I'm, I'm not super tied into the idea of failed beauty. Like I doesn't, we're all going to age. Right. And she goes, well, that's very easy for a beautiful woman to say, isn't it? And I said, and you are a beautiful woman. Would it not be easy for you to say? Like, none of that is tied up in my identity. Like, what I look like today is not what I'll look like in a week or what I look like five years ago. But like, if I attach to that, like any Buddhist would tell you, if I attach to that, I'm fucked. Yeah, you're fucked. Now, I can stop now. I can hang up my hat. The same holds true to me of the identity I had for many years as a wife TM, which is how I began to refer to it. Like as a wife TM, like I'm a, I'm a wife yeah. and then I'm a teacher and then I'm a writer and I'm, I'm on all, I'm some of that. Like all of those things are fungible. The only element of identity that is not fungible is the element other people keep seeing, right? Like when I am on my own and thinking of myself as only a writer and a traveler, if somebody else comes in and is like, I see you as an author and a professor, I have to be able to shift because I'm in a different context. Any, like a black friend of mine would say, you know, it's nice that on my own, I can go and just be a playwright. But if I go into the world, which I have to do, I am a black playwright. I am a black woman in a cab. I'm a black woman walking into a restaurant. That's somebody else's imposition of identity. And over time, of course, it shapes her own, right? That's relevant. Doesn't mean identity isn't relevant. It's how much of it do I invest with meaning? If I hang on to that, right? then I'm fucked and have no ability to go home. And for example, if she goes home and can no longer just see herself as a playwright and do her work, how does she do her work? It's how does it, it's not what do other people think of my identity? It's how am I allowing that to infect and inflect my own life and my work? Yeah. You know? Well, and, and the work, you know, there, there's like your, your work, your passion, the thing that, that you can disappear into and find joy in creating. Right, right, right. But there's the, the internal work, I feel like the job is always trying to calibrate your moral compass. Yes. Right. Yes. And if you're using your genitals or your skin or your money, park your car correctly. <laughs> yeah. If you're using that to calibrate your moral compass, there's a chance that you're fucking up. I don't know, yes. but there's a chance that you might be calibrating to the wrong thing. It's like you said, it's not that those aren't relevant. Of course they're relevant. Of course they matter. But your moral compass can't, can't align with those things. I don't think. I mean, maybe it can't be it can't be solely based in that informs like, I mean, am I going through the world making statements that I hope will be beneficial to women ultimately because there is an imbalance? Yes. Am I doing anti-racist work because that is also important to me? Yes. Am I doing these things because like but those those are are drawn from an awareness that that is part of my work in the world. Ultimately, my work in the world is to do something ethical daily like and to proceed from an ethical position which is again i don't believe a position of self what do i want what do i need if well honestly i want uh, more money and and more time to write that's what i want do i also want other things for other people i, I kind of probably need to go if i can make my basic needs met if i can get those maslow's hierarchy you know, if i can get that in line probably then i'm in a position to bring all those books i read to the world in some 
fundamentally beneficial way. That's what I then need to do, not go do something more for myself. That's all. Well, I think you've got a, a wonderful approach. Thanks. It's so weird the way that I came to, to you as a creative was through fucking Instagram. I know. Isn't it funny? I've only been on a few months. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Yeah. That's so weird, man. I, uh, anyway, I won't go too much, but like, I, you know, I, you were appealing to me in, in your weird poetry. Right, 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 right. I, I felt like it was poetry, like your sassy poetry thing. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, that you were a traveler and a writer. I've got many solo uh, traveler friends. Yeah, yeah. Of mine, Laura Austin, she's a wonderful photographer, wrote a book called Solo. And and it's just about her traveling and taking photos. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I can appreciate that. So I've got a kindred spirit with the traveler, but yeah. then when I discovered discovered that sounds very white man patriotic no i but you didn't know before then you discovered it right like you're... i discovered for myself how uh prolific your career has been in her as a writer mm -hmm. you sent me some stuff that um i've shared i shared it with uh, uh some friends of mine that i mean it's so powerful your writing thanks is just sublime thank you and it, it really is your 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 craft the way you tell it is um i mean it is very lyrical I don't know if that's like mm -hmm. you always tend to do that. Yeah. Are you just a lyrical? Do you think are you a song per, music person? Yeah, I, I I think in music, I think you know when I'm writing a sentence, it needs to needs to scan right. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Well, I, I I very much appreciate it, and it's been such a gift to to discover a new writer to me. You know, even though you've been doing it for a long time, it's new to me, and I'm I'm thrilled. Writing means a lot to me to sit down and write and to think. Yeah in that way and to take inventory yeah. of the world around you and yourself. And I feel like the way you inventory your world is, um, it's beautiful. Thank you. It's really beautiful. And uh, I, I want I want you to have all the time you need to write. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, and I'm excited about like the writing has, like everything else, I, like you've been in many marriages with one woman, you've had many lives, right? And I have been many writers in, in a way, like, and my hope is to continue honing that craft piece of it. But also there is, I'm only just beginning to be appreciative of the fact that the way the virtual world has changed is going to allow more writers to be discovered, whether old or new, right? Like it's going to get more good writing out there. And I'm really excited at this point about learning and I am very much still learning what these platforms are that are going to get the writing to readers like you right like who don't know my stuff from before because it, it, there's no platform for that like and there's no relevance of that at this point but like the new work and what I'm doing now there is a new readership and listenership and viewership for all of these things that we're doing now that we couldn't tap before because we were inside a system right and now that there are other ways of doing it I think we can step out the side door and and get writing to each other much more readily you strike me as the kind of person who um, you dive into a subject, know everything you can possibly know about it, mm -hmm. write everything you can possibly write about it, and then move the fuck on. Yeah. You're on the next thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot of journalists do that. You know, they, like they know everything about this aspect of the Supreme Court. Or, right, exactly. Yeah, right you know, it's exactly. like, fucking, now I'm working on the corporate law. Yeah. And, and that to me is, um, it's a cool skill. Yeah. That's why, like, my intersection with your previous books, my, my brain just wasn't there. You know, I wasn't thinking about those things. And, and but as your subject matters drift, that's the great thing. Like, when, when two things finally connect, yep. you know, just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The path that you've been on for your whole life and the path that I've been on, that, that we would intersect in. Insta fucking gram. Instagram. But that's going to have to be where we find the joy in it, right? Like, right. If, as absurd as we both think it is, we're both, you know, a generation that thinks, like, what is this garbage? Well, it's getting us some interesting new artists yeah. in front of us. And that's exciting to me.
that really is, you know? I've seen a lot of weird pictures of insects. I think I told you, I was like, the algorithm wants me to see all the weird insects. It wants me to discover all kinds of new music. (laughs) Occasionally it shows me women over 50 getting dressed in the morning. What? Okay, that's fascinating. Okay. Yeah, like here's my cool outfit. It's like, why did that come to me? (laughs) What did I do to... Like, of course, I like this. This is great. Right, but why am I? Right, this is why did this but show up for my why life? Me? Why yeah. am I the audience for this? <laughs> right. So I don't know where you intersect between great music, insects, and older women getting dressed. <laughs> but, you know, all three. I look a little spindly. You know, I look like a you know a little bit of an arachnid. I'm no, old don't. enough to be old, and I get dressed every day and sing. Uh, yeah. There it is. <laughs> it's so weird. The algorithm just put all those things together. I love it. Maria, thank you thank for you. for doing this. I, yeah. I know I've taken up a bunch of your time. So it's been a delight. MariaHornbacher.com is your website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I need to update it. It's going to go down. I'd say if you're going to go to that website, just hang on to the website. I'm going to update it this month. It'll be a new one that will show where the Substack and the YouTube and the uh, Audible are going to be at the beginning of the year. I'll put links to your Instagram page. Cool. And um, I'm also on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah, I post real different stuff there. Yeah. Anything that you want to share, we'll we'll put it all together. Whatever you got, I'll I'll make sure it's on the thing. Love it. And uh, yeah, cheers. Thanks. Cheers. Talk to you soon. Bye. With the conviction of the woman you made me, I find blades of grass from the island you lent me. I find. On every floor In every drawer Though I'm not an island, I'm a body of water Jeweled in the evening, a solitary daughter Picked at by noon By midnight I'm ruined Leave me alone to the books And the radio snow Leave me alone to the charcoal And the dancing shadow If each blade of grass was meant here for me Split apart, sliced and wedged in for me Who's gonna treat it? I'm not going to need it
I don't need your company to feel saved. I don't need the sunlight. My curtains don't draw. I don't need the objects to keep or to pawn. I don't want your pity, concern, or your scorn. I'm calm by my lonesome. I feel right at home. And when the wind blows, I get to dancing. My fun is the rhythm of air. When it's prancing, I play with the moon. My only friend, it pushes, it pulls me. I don't pay rent. I don't need the walls to bury my grave. I don't need your company to feel saved. I don't need the sunlight. My curtains don't draw. I don't need objects to keep or to pawn. I don't want your pity, concern, or your scorn. I'm calm by my lonesome. I feel right at home. 